Welcome to Window of Opportunity, a Stargate Rewatch podcast. I'm Carrie. I'm Rachel. And today we're talking about Stargate SG-1 Season 1 Episode 4, The Broca Divide. This one always sticks out in my memory as just being like one of the, for a sci-fi show about people traveling through a mystical Stargate to other worlds, like this one somehow sticks out in my brain as one of the weirder storylines yeah. that they came up with. It what is. You, what about yeah. you? It It is definitely weird, for sure. It's definitely up there in the, they did what? Sort of list of things. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like they were trying it out, and then they were like, yeah, let's walk that yeah. back. I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> there's some it. good stuff in this episode though, which we'll get to. But okay, before we get into the episode proper, theme song. How awesome was that? It's, yeah, we have one. We have a theme song, and it's super awesome. Uh, by Cobra Kyle. You can find him on Twitter at Cobra Kyle Music. He's amazing. I can't believe we got this. So thank you so much, Kyle. We appreciate Yay. it so much, and it kicks ass, and I love it. And yes, thank you. It's amazing. Go show him some love because it's great. We love you. Okay, so on to the episode. So this episode aired August 15th, 1997, written by Jonathan Glasner, one of the creators, and directed by William Garrity. The summary is, members of SG-1 become infected with an alien virus that turns them into primitive beings. Dr. Fraser must find a cure to save the team and the alien population from whom it was contracted. First appearance of Dr. Fraser. It is. Yeah, so get get your Vancouver actor bingo bingo card ready because Terrell Rothery's in the house. Ooh, she's great. I love her. She's like she's a little spunky thing. If you've ever seen her at conventions, she's just a hoot. Would you like to explain uh, the actor bingo game? Oh yeah. So <laughs> so like a bunch of shows like film in Vancouver because it's cheap to work in Canada, apparently. Um, so like Psych is up there. Stargate was up there. Smallville is up there. Supernatural is up there. And there's probably a few more I'm missing, but because it's a relatively small acting town, sort of, you get a lot of recurrence of like the same people showing up over and over again. So some, I don't know who started it, but somebody just started making the joke of, Oh, I can cross that actor off my Vancouver actors bingo card. <laughs> because So like Taylor Rother and Colin Cunningham were on psych and it was like, Oh, well, they're obviously a big part of whatever the plot is because why would they be there if they weren't? But, you know, Vancouver Actors Bingo. It's, you know, for the supporting cast. It's funny and amusing. So. And sometimes may ruin who the villain of the episode is. Sometimes. <laughs> it's like, why is that person there if they didn't do it? <laughs> but You're obviously then, more important to be an extra. So you're yeah. doing something more intricate but, in this plot line. Yeah. But there's still that, you know, how did they do it? And what was the reason behind doing it? And, you know, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm okay with it. Ah. Yeah. Alrighty, so let's get into it. So we start in the briefing room where we have a nice sort of callback to the pilot um, referencing the refugees. So the refugees haven't been forgotten, which is great. And Hammond says that during interviews with them, several of them were able to identify the last four symbols that were dialed when Apophis and his minions left Chulak, which they weren't at the gate when it got dialed. So I'm not quite sure how, but yay, they did. I guess it's sort of one of those things we're just going to hand wave on through. And then so using Carter's computer program and working with the information that was on the Abydos cartouche, they were able to determine that there's only one address that contains those final symbols, with the exception of the last symbol being the point of origin for Abydos. So we don't need that one. But those last three, they were able to determine where 
that planet is. So we're going to go there. And this is the planet that has been designated as P3X797. So it's not just SG-1 at this briefing. There's also SG-3. And one of the soldiers is kind of like giving Tilk this look like he wants to start a fight for some reason. And Tilk just I don't like the looks of you, boy. Yeah. So Tilk does the little eyebrow quirk that Christopher Judge does so well. And we continue on. And Daniel asks Sam, you know, if the planets could possibly be given names that are easier to remember than a random, you know, string of numbers and letters. And Sam explains that the address is based on the binary code that the program uses for extrapolation. Do you know the difference between gate addresses that start with the letter P and gate addresses that start with the letter M? Uh, they go to certain ones in the morning or the evening. <laughs> uh, no, good guess, but no. Uh, gate addresses that start with the letter P are a planet, and gate addresses that start with the letter M are a moon. Ah, uh, so I like my answer better. And then the, it's it's definitely a more amusing answer, but unfortunately incorrect. <laughs> so there random you go. question though. Yes. Um, okay, so who would win in an eyebrow off, the uh, character of Teal'c or The Rock? Oh, huh. Uh, well, I mean, since we're on the Stargate podcast, I'm going to go with Teal'c because this is a Stargate podcast. <laughs> because we must support Stargate and all Because things. we must support Stargate at all costs. So. <laughs> if anyone has any opinions on this, do vote. Yes, please vote in the in the there'll be, you know, a post on Twitter about this episode. So go to Twitter and let us know in the comments, the rock or Tilk, who would win. OK, so Hammond says they sent uh, an MALP probe. So we haven't yet started to call it a MALP. So but a MALP has been sent through and the atmosphere is breathable. But even if it's a little chilly, uh, however, there's no video playback available because the area where the gate is is apparently very dark and the lights on the map were broken somehow and you know this concerns daniel because they don't know what they're walking into and who knows what the conditions are like and who knows what's you know around the area whether there's crazy wild animals or something but colonel makepeace speaks up and says that there's nothing to worry about since the sg3 marines will be there to cover their backs. So this is our first look at um, one of the other SG teams besides SG-1 and 2. And it's also interesting that these guys are Marines and not Air Force. So apparently the SGC is now a multi-service branch operation, which is interesting. Well, which makes sense because they're going to, you know, other planets, why different military branches would get involved. I also just kind of have this thing in my brain that sparks of like, if you have something that they're going to different planets, how only Americans are dealing with it. Uh, yeah. Like, like, why is this not a world issue? Why are people from other countries not going through? We don't, we don't know. It's also the magic of television that we're supposed to just be like, okay, this is fun. But it's, it's always just something that sticks out in my brain. But yeah, at least if they have different military branches, I guess that's something. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's still very early in the need-to-know status of the Stargate program. 
All right. So gates activated and off we go. And since it's very dark wherever we're going, the teams have been given night vision goggles, which is great. Makepeace tries to shove his way through and let SG3 go through first because that's sort of their job on this mission. But Jack insists that SG1 goes first. And as they walk up, you know, the ramp, he tells Daniel he's just he's worried that if Scara Scara or Sharae are near the gate, then that SG3 might just like open fire on them. And we don't want that because we don't know what's there. So we just want to make sure if there are any people if any of the people we're looking for are there that we can protect them. SG1 goes through and <laughs> as I was watching the scene, I I just I had to wonder to myself how much Richard Dean Anderson contributed to the special effects budget by like playing with the event horizon before he walked through <laughs> because he like does that like he'll just like swat at it and like you know play with it before it's like they have to you know now pay <laughs> to make sure the special effects matches up with what he does and it's just like you know it also raises questions in nerd brains of like at what point in time does when you put your hand through it, does it take it and put it to the other side? I had that question too, because after SG one goes through, SG walks up the ramp and Makepeace like sticks his gun, like the like the end of his gun into the wormhole to like for the ten count. And yeah, it was like, yeah, at what like is the tip of his gun now sticking out the other side of the wormhole, or is it like being broken like is there something in the gate technology that recognizes when a whole thing is finally through and then it starts the demolecularization process. Like, yeah, then, that... it has to, then it has to actually like know what the thing is. Yeah. And that's weird. What if multiple things and people are going through at the same time? Yeah. How they never get crossed. Yeah. If two people walk through the gate at the same time, they, it's able to differentiate this person from that person. And yeah. How do they not have something like the scene in Spaceballs where somebody, you know, their head gets turned around backwards. <laughs> I don't, apparently our Stargate is much smarter than the Spaceballs transporter beam. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so weird. Cause it was built thousands of years ago. When they don't make things like they used to anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they don't. <laughs> oh, but yeah, that's, yeah, it's a weird thing. I don't know. Okay, so SG-1 goes through and it, it really is very dark and the only light seems to be coming from the wormhole itself. And we see the map sitting over there and there's like rocks on it. Like somehow rocks got thrown at it or it tumbled into rocks somehow. And there's some very tense music happening as we're looking around with the night vision goggles. And there's like something like running through the woods because the Stargate is always in the woods because we're in Vancouver. But something or someone is like running around in the woods and then people jump out and start attacking SG-1. And from what we can see, they look quite Neanderthal-like. Like they're wearing, you know, like furs and like long hair and like grunting and growling. And then SG-3 finally comes through and starts just firing their weapons in the air and scaring them off. But then they're also like firing at them because there's one of them dead on the ground and we get a good look at it. And it is some sort of very old humanoid Neanderthal-like person. And Jack looks very confused, which I would be too. I mean, I'd be confused if I was like, mm -hmm. because when humans were taken from Earth, we were already homo sapien we weren't whatever this human is so 
It's very strange. So then we get the opening credits, which are always great and wonderful. And so SG-1 and SG-3 are making their way through the woods and they come across a campfire and it's the people that attacked SG-1. And Jack asks Daniel if he knows what they are. And Daniel begins sort of rattling off a bunch of possibilities. And while they don't look completely homo sapien, the larger ridge bone would imply homo erectus. But then again, they would have canine teeth. They could be australopithecus, but the browage would be less prominent. So basically Daniel doesn't know. He's just <laughs> rattling on as anthropologists do, but he doesn't really know. And there's a a woman tied up by the fire, and she definitely looks like a normal human person like we do. One of the Neanderthals grabs her and tries to rape her, which the only part of this episode I really don't like. Good quality TV. Yeah. So for some reason, Sam is the only person who wants to stop what's happening and nobody else does, which high like yeah, assault, I'm not, I'm, I'm not this, quite please. sure how this would be like influencing their culture on a level yeah. where they shouldn't get involved like this is definitely a point where they should be like oh crap we should we should help this woman yes please help her so then rocks come flying into the sort of campfire area from a different direction like they're being flung like projectiles and we sort of like scan the area and we find this group of people that are in these sort of sheer white robes with like their head covered and their face covered. And they look very, I don't like, I don't know. They look weird. Like it's a, it's a, it's a very shiny sheer fabric that they're wearing and they're like flinging rocks at these Neanderthal people. Um, Jack is able to confirm that they're not ghouled at least because they don't have the scar like on the back of their neck where symbiote would have entered. So these, you know, is not Apophis and his people. And the main guy introduces himself as High Counselor Tuplo of the Untouched. And one of the women says, we are pleased the gods have deemed us worthy of a return visit. So once again, SG-1 is mistaken for gods because apparently anybody that comes through the gate is a god, which sort of makes sense in a way, but it's just like... Again, Jack's like, we're not, we're not, God, just stand up. We don't need to bow. Just we're people like you. So then SG-1 and SG-3 get led to the land of the light. And we also, we see the woman from before who was around the campfire is being, you know, sort of brought with us. Which, okay, so here's the question. This planet is apparently tidal locked somehow where one side is always dark and one side is always light. How is the dark side not a frozen tundra and how is the light side not a burning hot desert? That's a very good thought. Because that would be what happens if one side is always facing the sun and one side is always not facing the sun. Then that would also mess with their gravity, isn't it? Because if if day and night never happens, that means they're not moving. Well, they they could be rotating at the same rate that their orbit is. So they are spinning, but they're also moving around the sun at the same rate. So, yeah, so they would have gravity. But, yeah, it's very strange. Like, it, should, it shouldn't be like a pleasant, balmy spring day there. It should be a dry, arid desert. And also, how do they sleep if it's always, like, you know, noon? Well, that's a question for people that live in Antarctica. That's true. Or, you know, very, very north, very, very south places. Yeah. Where is it where it's like where it's almost 24 hour day light? Um, I mean, it's just very like, you know, Canada, northern Scandinavia and stuff. I don't know what the exact longitudinal line is where that happens. Yeah. The land of the midnight sun kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But even then, that's not like 
noon brightness because the sun is very low in the sky. You know, it's not like direct overhead bright sunlight like this place seems to be. Okay, so our teams get shown into... <laughs> You're just like, moving on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> We're going to stop pondering this whole light all the time thing, dark all the time thing. Yeah. Are they moving? How are they walking? Are they What's happening? Are there any Should scientists out there that can help explain this better than what I was able to find online? <laughs> Should we do a fill in the plot hole situation? Sure. What? What situation makes sense where even though the planet has gravity, therefore people are moving and it's moving correctly, like why would one part of the planet always be light and another part of the planet always be dark and somehow they still have pretty, pretty vegetation? Yeah. Um, The distance from the sun makes it so it's not so hot, but then the cold side would be like even more freezing. See, I don't know. See, explanations I can make to get the light side work would just don't work for the dark side because the dark side should be a frozen tundra of like, you know, negative 40 or something. I don't know. What do you think? I'm going to go with giant clouds in the atmosphere are making it dark all the time. And they just don't move. Okay, so the clouds are tidal locked to the planet. Yes. Interesting. What do you guys think? Put it to a vote. And the clouds are such that they're like, "Mm, I'm just going to stay here. I like it here. Right here in this very Mm -hmm. spot. Not so much here. Not so much there. But right over this tree. Okay. So our team gets thrown to some sort of large ceremonial room. And they take the young woman who from before is, and she's lying on some sort of like altar with uh, bulls on either side where the horns are sort of forming an archway over her. And Daniel comments that it looks Minoan. Which, what, do, what do you know about the, Minino, the Minoan civilization? They like bull-like creatures. <laughs> this, yes, they do. Uh, it's where the Minotaur came from? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think... Well, did it? I don't think so. Maybe. Ooh, it I, sounded good enough to be a boulder dash. Ooh, it could be. I did not find out about that in my research, but I decided to, you know... What, what is the Minoan civilization? So, the Minoan civilization was a Bronze Age Aegean civilization on the island of Crete and the other Aegean islands, flourishing from about 3000 BC to 1450 BC, and after a late period of decline, finally ended around 1100 BC during the early Greek Dark Ages. However, the Minoans were not Greek, nor do they appear to be closely related, so they're sort of in that area where Greece is, but are not Greek themselves. What does seem clear, however, is that they helped to shape the early Greek civilization and were later immortalized by Homer and other Greek poets. As we can see here, bulls were very important in Minoan culture and were often venerated in their spiritual practices. In general, the bull represented the sun and the power of light, which is interesting here that, you know, it's the land of the light. And we have the bull. So for the Minoans, the bull also served as a power, as a symbol of power and might, particularly the power of man over nature. There are a large number of stucco frescoes on and around Crete showing a sport called bull leaping, which I looked into it. And it almost sounds like what we would call like cowboys and like rodeos, where it was like this sport where you just tried to jump over a bull for the entertainment of the masses. Which was, which was interesting. I was like, okay, that's... how many people would even be able to do that? Um, well, apparently you didn't. 
do it yourself. There were, it was like two or three people and like one person, like I, from what I could tell, I may be completely off base, but it was like the bull came charging one person, like pushed on the bull's head to get it down. And then the other person like jumped over it apparently maybe, (laughs) which it was, it was, it was weird that the jump was like from head to tail and not just like over its back or something. Like they like jumped like the long way over the bowl from what I could tell. So if someone came to you and they were like, Hey, I want you to be in my bull jumping team. That's great. What do you want me to do? I want you to be the guy that stands directly in front of the bull and is charging at you. You just like pat on its head as hard as you can. And I'll just jump right over it, man. Would you be like, yes, I'm totally about that. It would get me all the chicks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I could say yes to that. I'm not quite sure I would be all about that one. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but it just, I don't know. It just seemed like it's a really weird sport is what it was back then. It was, you know, a entertaining sports for the people. So there we go. That's what I found about the Minoan civilization. Bulls. And, Bulls. Possibly, and possibly minotaurs. Possibly. I'm going to declare it until prove it otherwise. It was <laughs> okay. the birth of the minotaur. The Minotaur was in the labyrinth with uh, the golden thread. So I don't think that was because it was the Greek, unless the Greeks named the Minotaur after the Minoans because it was a bull, half bull, half man. So it may have been named after the Minoans, but not created by the Minoans. I don't know. I'm using it my next game of Boulder Dash. Okay. Sounds good. And I will win. I believe you will because it sounds very convincing to me. Fantastic. <laughs> also, does it seem very weird that like the so the the girl is that they just rescued is sitting crying on the altar of bulls? Do you think that's just like the designated cry sadness place? I mean, it could be like they put Daniel there later, jumping ahead a bit. It seems to be a somewhat sacred place where they're hoping maybe like the healing power of the bull will fix her. Right. So okay, so it's like the healing altar. Yeah, I think. That's sort of what I took away from it, anyway, based on so, you know this and then what happens later. What other occasion would you think would warrant the bull altar? Like, oh, I'm feeling sad today. I'm gonna go see if the bull altar can ho- altar can help me, or like, <laughs> I or I just think... got fired from my job. I'm gonna go hang out at the bull altar. <laughs> Maybe it can help me. <laughs> Maybe. Uh-huh. Or I burn my casserole. I need to go to the bull altar. <laughs> it will help me. Yes. Okay. So we find out that this young woman is the daughter of Tuplo and her name is Melosha. They are waiting to see if she will become like the touched, which is what they call those Neanderthal-like people. Tuplo further explains that those people were cursed by the Hilksha. And Tilk clarifies that the Hilksha are the gods of the underworld and that they are evil. So is, is Apophis a Hilksha? Or are these like, are these even like gods that the Gould believe in? Are the Hilksha Goulds or are they other sort of gods? Don't they, in the same conversation, ask how long has it been since the gods visited? I don't know if that's this conversation, but I think that comes later. But yeah, they they do ask that. And so I, I would imagine, though, that those gods that they're talking about in that conversation are the Ghoul, whoever like brought them here and has been their sort of overseer for a while. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm just trying, I'm 
a little confused if the Hilksha are ghouls or are the Hilksha gods that the ghouls believe in. Well, maybe it's just other people that at some point in time made it through the Stargate. Because, like, if their version of Cursed is infecting these people with whatever this is, it wouldn't be the Gould because they don't get sick. The Hilksha is not the curse itself. The Hilksha is what they call the gods, is the name of the gods. But if these Hilksha brought the curse. Oh, I see. And we're talking in regular regular terms as we know it knowing that this turns out to be just like a a disease or you know like a sickness that people bring Mm -hmm. with them that they didn't know how to cure chances are the evil gods coming and cursing them is just some other people that figured out how to get through the stargate and brought the sickness with them so it couldn't have been the ghouled because they don't get sick right but tilk knows what the hilkshaw are so are the hilkshaw other gate traveling folk in general or is it, are the Hilkshaw some sort of legend amongst the Gould and the Gould told these people about the Hilkshaw? We don't know. The Hilkshaw could be one of any number of things. We don't know. It's not clarified, unfortunately. But so what we learned from this conversation is that the touched were once like the untouched, but then something overtook them and they became too dangerous and violent to live among the people. And so they were banished to the dark side. Oh, it is this conversation. So Ladora, who's the the woman there with Tuplo, she confirms that it's been at least a generation since the Gould were here. So it's been, yeah, quite a, it's been a while since the Gould were here. But we what we don't know is how long the whole touched untouched situation has been going on. If it's always been a thing or if it's a recent thing that we don't know about, unfortunately. So as she one sort of excuses themselves from the talk to go have a little discussion amongst ourselves. And Jack is basically like, since the Gould haven't been here in a generation, then obviously Apophishari and Scar can't be here. So we're just going to go. And as usual, Daniel's like, uh, no, we need to stay because culture, Minoan society, we need to study. And because apparently we never really knew why the bull shows up in all their art and culture. Like, like why was it? you know, so important to their supposed, like, religion and religious practices. We still don't know. And Jack's like, no, we're leaving. So cut back through the wormhole. And back on Earth, Jack tells Hammond that we didn't find anything. And Daniel's like, yeah, we did find a lot of things. And Jack's like, well, nothing important. And, you know, it's, it's again, that whole fight of mission versus, hey, I know mission, but look at this cool thing. There's other stuff besides the mission. Mission, but civilization. Yes. Yeah. So we're debriefing and Daniel's sort of getting all insistent again that they should have stayed to study the culture and the difference between, you know, the humans on the dark side and the light side. And Sam agrees. And this is where we learn what the Broca divide is. Pierre Paul Broca was a 19th century anthropologist. He founded modern craniometry to study crani- like craniums and brains and to compare the divide in intelligence between early species of mankind. So more specifically, though, the Broca divide deals with the development of language and the difference between cultures that were sort of pre-verbal, if you will, and then those that have actually like developed a language. So the Broca divide is all about language. And that makes sense because the people on the dark side don't seem to be able to speak. They just sort of, you know, grunt and groan and yell and things. They're pre-Broca? I don't know if that's the right term. But that's where the title of the episode comes from, which is great because it doesn't always work where we actually, like, learn what the title of the episode means in the episode. But here we are. Perhaps we should add that to future ponderings. What does the name, what does the name of the episode mean? Mm-hmm. That could be interesting. 
<laughs> so during this whole conversation, Johnson, which is he's the shoulder, the soldier from the pre-mission briefing that was like given to the stink eye. He's kind of like getting really agitated and rocking back and forth and is like giving the stink eye even harder. And Jack just wants to get on with the briefing, but Daniel keeps insisting that Hammond hear him out. And then Hammond goes, that's okay, Dr. Jackson, you've already won the argument, which I, wait, what? Apparently, the president agrees with Daniel. Uh, Hammond says that he's asked that we evaluate the scientific and cultural value of each mission from now on. So Jack's not super happy about this because science is dumb, but Daniel and Sam are really happy. So this is the sort of beginning of expanding the scope of all the SG teams. And yes, we have this mission to go find, you know, Sharae and Skara and in general explore, you know, the planets that we can get to. But we will also be taking the time to study, you know, the cultures and the civilizations and all of that stuff in addition to whatever the general mission objective is. Do you think that was due to the previous episode where they found the new antiseptic? Anesthetic. Anesthetic. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed it. <laughs> you want me to ask that again? Do you think that was due to the previous episode where they found the new anesthetic? I mean, maybe. Because if, you know, taking the time to study the culture and civilization and all that stuff can improve our life on Earth, why not take that time? Even if it's just being able to understand early humans, you know, the sort of those old civilizations that have died and maybe don't have a ton of history written about them. So possible. I would, I would buy that argument. So something comes over Johnson and he actually like leaps over the table to attack Tilk and like, he's like got him by like the jacket and everybody tries to get Johnson to calm down, but he won't. And he like threatens Tilk's like symbiote to like strangle him or something. It's very, it's like, what, what has happened to Johnson? Eventually Tilk is able to get him into an arm lock and some soldiers come in to like take him away, but he starts like foaming at the mouth and almost seizing. So Hammond orders him to be taken to the infirmary and kept in restraints while they try and figure out what's going on. Cause obviously there's something more than just Johnson being mad at Tilk at play here. So we cut to sometime later and Sam and Daniel are down doing something with the gate. I don't know. Daniel's got a clipboard. He's writing things down. Sam's like poking it with some sort of scientific doodad doohickey and they're trying to science. they're just science and they're just having a conversation trying to figure out like what was going on with johnson and they think maybe he was drunk but n that doesn't make any sense and then there's some sort of ruckus up in the briefing room and they turn to look and there's two men fighting and then they one tosses the other through the window and then they fall onto the gate room floor and Sam and Daniel rush over, but they look dead, maybe? Because one guy's got to, like his eyes open and he's not moving. I don't know if they're both dead or just that one guy, but Sam calls for the medics anyway. So there's there's something fishy going on in the SGC because this is not normal behavior. And this does bring up a really good point of how could they not have thought about this before of, oops, what if we bring something back with us? Uh, yeah. In the way of, of airborne or contagious diseases or anything anyway. And it raises the question of like, why is it that they didn't have some sort of, uh, you know, um, what's the thing where you have like biohazards and then somebody has to go to like that huge shower or, you know, you go through a clean room or something. Why yeah. don't they have that set up directly when people come back from the gate? Yeah. 
to make sure that they are thoroughly cleaned before they go anywhere and then quarantined to make sure that they don't have any sort of weird diseases that they picked up. Yeah. Yeah. And it never comes up again after this either. I know. That's the other thing, too, is that after they have this really big outbreak where they're like, oh, crap, did we bring a new plague back? You don't see any of those things in any other episode. So maybe we should change what we're doing. No, they're just like, meh, new planets, whatever, we're fine. We fixed it. It's fine. We fixed it that one time. We're okay. So we cut to Jack in the locker room. He's like post-shower and shirtless. And looking very like, you know, hunky hunky man that he is. Which is <laughs> funny. Um and then Why is the that camera- funny? Huh? Why is it funny? I think Dean Anderson is a very hunky hunky man. He is, but like this isn't that kind of show where you expect like, you know, hunky hunky man shots. Oh. <laughs> At least, you know, I I I don't, but maybe I should. You gotta appeal to all audiences to bring in as much, you know, audience participation as possible. This is true. So the camera sort of pans around and Carter reaches out and like slams his locker closed and like her hair's all super fluffy and she's gotten into this like cropped tank top and she's looking very like sultry and seductive and like just grabs Jack and lays one on him and Jack like pushes her away and is like, hey, what's going on? And she goes, I want you and like grabs him again and Jack goes, why? I mean, no, which I just, I love that why. <laughs> First reaction is why not no but why um and pushes her off again and she like flips him onto the bench and straddles him and asks do you want me and jack's answer is interesting jack goes not like this his answer is not no i don't want you but not oh, like you got this. that huh yeah that is a very interesting thing yeah so i think this so this is sort of the beginning of all of the sam jack stuff that comes in later seasons where this is sort of the beginning of acknowledgement of they find each other attractive I guess will they won't they will they won't they but they can't because rules so Jack manages to like roll them like off the bench onto the floor and she gets like the wind knocked out of her and he gets her under control and takes her to the infirmary and Sam is now like in scrubs and strapped down to a gurney and here we have Dr. Frazier and it's weird that like she doesn't have get like an introduction she's just Dr. Frazier now like she's been there the whole time like she's been there the whole time even like let a couple weeks ago you know like Dr. Warner sort of Hi, I'm Dr. Warner. We don't even get a hi, I'm Dr. Fraser moment, which is a little interesting. So Sam's like struggling against the, you know, her bindings that are strapping her down. And Jack asks if this is basically what happened to Johnson. And Dr. Fraser confirms along with the other members of the team that have been sort of acting aggressively. And she leads Jack out into the corridor and explains that in the SGC, they converted the DEFCON 1 living compartments into isolation chambers because you never know what you're going to bring back through the Stargate. So they kind of did. So they had the at least the idea that something might happen and they might need to isolate people, but they didn't have any protocols in place to yeah, like you said, like clean people when they come back. Just if you get something, you're going to go into this like concrete cell. So she slides open like, you know, those little sliding windows things. And we see Johnson and he like looks very physically different. Like his like brow is heavier and he's like gone, you know, preverbal like we saw on the dark side where he's just grunting and groaning. And Dr. Fraser's trying to figure out what's going on. But the secretive nature of the Stargate program is hindering things because she can't, like, get experts to come in and help her because this is all very need-to-know basis. And, hey, aliens and stuff is not something, I guess, they don't just get out there. And what? Then it, they want to keep it a secret? 
do because aliens, it's scary, panic and everything. So in the next room down, another like SG3 members like banging on the wall and he's like, like his hands have gone bloody and there's like blood smeared out over the wall. So like, this is like, like what's going on is like, this is serious. This is very, very not good. And Dr. Fraser explains that everyone is acting like primitives and that Sam's behavior is typical of the females as they would choose their sexual partners based on who would give them the strongest children. So really, Jack should be flattered. Apparently, Sam thinks Jack could give her strong children. And really, uh, I can't I can't argue with that. I, I, would I mean, it's, it's very sound logic. I, w- I would agree. So Daniel finds Jack in the gate room and he's brought him some research he's done on Australopithecus. Which, do you know anything about Australopithecus? Hmm, let me think. No, nothing. Nothing at all. (laughs) Okay. Well, so the name Australopithecus comes from the Latin australis, meaning southern, and the Greek word pithecos, meaning ape, and is a genus of early hominins that existed in Africa during the late Pliocene and early Pleistocene eras. The genera Homo, which includes modern humans, Paranthropus, and Kenyanthropus evolved from Australopithecus. So Australopithecus are our very early ancestors. And the earliest known member of the genus Australopithecus anamensis existed in eastern Africa around 4.2 million years ago. Australopithecus fossils became more widely dispersed throughout eastern and southern Africa. So Australopithecus is one of the longest lived and best known early human species. Paleoanthropologists have uncovered remains from more than 300 individuals found between that lived between 3.85 and 2.95 million years ago in Eastern Africa, specifically like Ethiopia, Kenya, and Tanzania. And Australopithecus species survived for more than 900,000 years, which is over four times as long as we have existed. So Australopithecus were, they were around for a while. There you go. You can recreate them with disease. Apparently. So Dana notices that Jack's got like scratches on him and asks what's going on. And Jack explains that like Sam had come down with whatever Johnson has and tried to seduce him. And Dana goes, Oh, you poor man. Like, am, am I supposed to feel sorry for you about that oh i was i was noting that i i very much like the character of daniel jackson in this it seems like they're hitting more of a stride with that character or or they're allowing you know michael shanks to be a little bit more a part of the daniel jackson character because he's you know he has a little bit more sarcastic comments in him and he has a little bit more of a different attitude and i'm i'm enjoying him me too i enjoy daniel a lot Uh, so Daniel asks if Sam is okay and Jack wants to know why Daniel wants to know if Sam's okay and Daniel's like she's my friend I care about her and Jack's like Sam's not yours to care about and he Jack gets like real mad that like Daniel just wants to go make sure that Sam is okay and Daniel's like maybe you we should go to the infirmary but Jack just attacks Daniel and then Jack gets hauled away and so whatever's wrong with everybody has now gotten to Jack. Back in the infirmary, Daniel and Tilk are getting their blood taken and we get a bit of a rundown from Dr. Fraser about what's going on. And she says this is a parasitical virus. From what I can tell, it seems to feed on alines and cholines, which are chemical transmitters in the body. And that includes neurotransmitters as they're depleted, all but the primitive parts of the brain seem to just shut down. 
Aunt Hamina asks, so that's why they're acting like animals? And Freya goes, well, actually, the organism seems to release a hormone that stimulates the primitive regions of the brain that are normally dormant. So whatever's going on is affecting the brain and sort of shutting down the more sort of high-level functions and just leaving the more base instincts and also the hormone agitates that as well and probably has to do with, you know, the aggression and the strength and everything. So this is a very strange disease indeed. So Daniel finally pieces together that this is what's happening on P3X797, which, duh, obviously. So Dr. Frazier wonders why Daniel and Mr. Tilk haven't been affected yet. And I just love that she calls him Mr. Tilk, (laughs) not just Tilk. Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Um, so Tilk symbiote, you know, probably protects him from it because that's its job. But there's no idea why Daniel's not affected yet, because he should at least be starting to show symptoms, if not be, you know, full blown symptomatic yet. So Hammond orders the mountain sealed off due to the seemingly highly contagious nature of the virus. So it doesn't get out into the general population. And there's suddenly this like high pitched squeal. And everybody runs out into the hall and Tilk opens one of the windows in the rooms and we see Jack is throwing himself against the door to, I don't know, try and get out or get somebody attention. And so Dr. Fraser orders the door open so she can give him more sedatives because apparently they're just pumping everybody full of sedatives to keep them calm and like in control. So back in Hammond's office, the red phone rings and he explains what's going on to the president. Uh, He asks for a second line of defense to be set up just in case anyone does manage to escape the mountain. He then recommends that anyone attempting to leave be shot on site and the body burned. So this is a very, very serious situation that we're in. Do you think anybody would have already left already? Like, Like some janitor that got off his shift? I mean, who knows? It's possible, but... So I guess the other question is sort of how is it is like, is it just an airborne thing? Like if you're just, is anybody in the SGC at risk because the pathogen's like just in the air. So it's circulating through like the HVAC system or do you have to actually like be in contact with the person who has it? Who knows? All good questions. All good questions. They don't really get answered because they don't have time. No. And then, you know, like how long has it been since they got back? Is this like the same day? Is this the next day? Because usually briefings are like the next day kind of thing. So questions. All questions questions. that do not get answered because the episodes are only so long. 44 minutes. So Sam's getting wheeled away in a gurney, but Dr. Fraser has some good news. Daniel and Tilk do not have the organism in their system. We still don't know why. So Tilk suggests asking the untouched how they managed to not become infected. And Dr. Frazier's like, I mean, that's a great idea because we don't know anything. So let's go ask the people who this is happening to them. And she asks for a sample of their blood so she can analyze it. And perhaps there's something in there that can be synthesized to help our people to some some sort of treatment. So Hammond agrees and orders Dr. Frazier to teach Daniel and Tilk how to draw blood as the two of them are going back to P3X797 in 30 minutes. And Daniel's like, wait, what? And Hammond's like, you you two are immune somehow. So off you go. So off they go. But before they leave, Daniel sneezes. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He and Tilk arrive back on P3X797 and they've still, you know, got the night vision goggles and Daniel spots something laying on the ground and it's Melosha. She's alive, but on the dark side because she has become one of the touched, unfortunately. So Daniel wants to help, but Tilk thinks they need to just leave her. And Daniel's like, I'm not going to leave her. So he like 
lifts her awkwardly and they try to get away, but the other touch come out of the woods and sort of surround them and start attacking them. And Tilk begins firing his weapon to scare them off, which they do. And he turns around and Daniel is gone with his glasses just laying on the ground. Daniel has lost his glasses. Count one. So back at the SGC, Hammond is being put into the same room with Jack because Hammond is now infected and Jack has drastically regressed and is sort of hunkering in the corner of the room and he begs Dr. Fraser for more sedative but it's not safe because he's been given too much already but he insists and so Fraser gives in and injects him again and this seems to provide some sort of immediate relief apparently there seems to be some sort of pain involved in this regression too because his reaction to being sedated is like oh thank god so he he sort of gasps and a, a bit of his old self seems to come out and he asks Dr. Frazier if this is a dream and like what's happening to him because he has no idea what's going on. And we get some new information from Dr. Frazier here. Um, she says it's a histaminolytic, which means it breaks down histamine, which the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, well, that's why Daniel's not affected by it, because he's allergic to everything and is on, you know, high doses of antihistamines every day. How, how did Dr. Fraser not grasp this immediately? Because it seems so obvious to me. And I, I don't know that this is sort of the other bit of the episode that I have problem, uh, problems with. It's like, you know what histamines are. You know Daniel has allergies because you're his doctor, so you've read his file. Make the connection. <laughs> How are you not Ta-da! making the connection? I do have to say, though, that Richard Dean Anderson's acting in this scene is, like, really great. And he, like, interrupts Dr. Fraser to insist that whenever they start trying to figure out a sort of cure for this thing that they experiment on him. And it's just, like, you just, like, your heart breaks a bit for Jack because, you know, he's in there somewhere. But he's, like, trapped and it's... Yeah, and he's fighting real hard. He's fighting so hard, and he wants to, like, help. And congratulations, RDA. You're great. Back on P3X797, Tilk has arrived back in the gathering room and explains what's going on and that this whole touch thing is not a curse. It's just a disease, and it's starting to affect our people, and we need their help. But Tuplo and Lidora, they just they don't want to help, or they can't. But, like, they just they don't believe him that it's just... A, a sickness and illness and they insist that he leaves. So uh, they leave the room and he goes to leave, but he knocks out two of the guards that are at the door so he can get at least a blood sample out of this whole thing. So we get that. And back at the touched camp, we see Daniel there. He's been sort of taken by them and he tries to get away, but he just gets attacked and dragged back and more violence. So more senseless to- violence on TV. Where senseless- does it end? Where does it yeah. end? Oh, too much. Oh, the humanity. So back on Earth, Tilk's in the infirmary with the blood, and we see Sam back there because Sam was stabbed by her roommate, but she'll be fine. Uh, he goes to then visit Jack, who seems oddly coherent, and he apologizes for like losing Daniel and leaving him behind because Daniel's still on P3X797 right now. And Dr. Fraser comes in and starts explaining that what she's found and that the blood sample Tilk gave her has very little histamine in it. So there must be some naturally occurring antihistamine in their diet. And then those who don't eat enough eventually become detached because they don't have the antihistamine con to counter the histamine. And this is where she finally makes the connection because she also has allergies and Daniel has allergies. And so the antihistamine they take just basically starves the virus because they have no histamine in their body for the virus to feed off of. So she thinks if they can give 
everybody is sort of a high enough dose of an av antihistamine that it should kill off any histamine in their body long enough to starve that virus out for good. But it's such a very high dose and it could be, you know, dangerous. Jack gives his consent and she injects it into his IV. What do you think it like, do you think the IV is just like a steady drip of sedatives since, you know, in the previous scene, giving him, you know, the massive dose of sedatives seemed to repress the sort of the touched side of him and let Jack out. So has she just had him on a drip of sedatives for the fat past few hours? I think it would make the most sense. Um, although I did wonder why all of the people that they had in the isolation cells, like why they weren't all kind of strapped to beds like Carter was, because they seemed to be doing harm to themselves and others. Yeah. Just like putting them in a cell, like shelves and beds and all sorts of sharp things that they could. (laughs) Yeah. They could throw around and hurt themselves. So I, I do wonder at this point why she also hadn't hooked up at least O'Neill to a to a bed if they're yeah. doing medical things on him. Um, I yeah. found that weird. Also, they were putting everybody in cells by themselves. So how did how did Sam even have a roommate to stab her? Why would they, they put two in by himself? Well, because they, they did start running out of room because, you know, there's only so much room. Like earlier, you know, we saw Hammond being brought into Jack's room for a little bit. And then I guess once Jack became coherent, they took Hammond out and put him somewhere else. So, yeah, putting two very uh, aggressive and primitive minded people in the same room just seems like a recipe for disaster and lots of murder. Just not a good idea, Meg. No, but I guess that's what we have to work with. So the answer is yes. I think there was a sedative in the IV bag. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, so the antihistamine gets added to that. And then, you know, Jack passes out because antihistamines will do that to you. And, you know, Tilk very gingerly covers him with, with the blanket and it's very nice and sweet. Some time passes and we see Tilk just sitting, basically like sitting guard outside Jack's room. And we finally then hear Jack knocking on the door, like sort of normal knocking, not aggressive, like pounding. And he's calling for Tilk or Dr. Fraser and definitely sounding a lot more like his old self. And Tilk slides open the window and we see Jack looking, you know, more like right, like the heavy brow is gone and the extra eyebrow hair has disappeared. And he goes, Lucy, I'm home. Which it looks like, I'm not Lucy. What are you talking about? And he like doesn't want to let Jack out of the room because he's like, you called me Lucy. How do I know you're yourself again? And eventually, you know, Jack convinces him and they go see Dr. Fraser. So there's this book I have that's basically like a sort of series of essays about various topics related to SG-1 and one of the essays is about pop culture in SG-1 like you know this Lucy Home reference and like the Oprah reference and Jack's Love the Simpsons that comes up and it made an interesting point that a lot of shows avoid pop culture references specifically to not tie it to a specific sort of time and place but SG-1 seems to lean very heavily in pop culture references and stuff. Do you think that is a good thing or a bad thing? Like, do you like the various pop culture references that we get in the show? I do. I mean, although it does very, very much date something if you're using a pop culture reference. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things that you go back and you watch it and it very much works negatively where you're like, oh, this does not translate anymore. This does not even work. Yeah, that was nobody says that anymore. This is wrong. Thing is so old that it's just like vintage nostalgia. It works like like Lucy, I'm home. Like that's just cute. But yeah. if they had if they had said 
you know, something from like a beer commercial that was popular at the time and you rewatch it and you'd be like, oh, nobody says that anymore. Like, nobody what's up? Yeah, that just, that just does not work. So I, I think... I think it has to have, you know, stood the test of a certain amount of time mm-hmm. in order to just be like a classic line. It's also interesting that like this is a sci-fi show, which is it's not just sort of like a regular drama. Do you think because it's sci-fi, do you think that then helps people relate to it more because it's not so far out there as, you know, weird aliens, but also Simpsons references? Does it make do you think that makes it sort of more accessible? to people that might not generally like or watch sci-fi? Oh, I do. I think that very much is a really big help in in reaching also the wider the wider audiences aside from hunky hunky Richard Dean Anderson <laughs> <laughs> and as, sexy sexy Sam. <laughs> as previously discussed. Yeah. yeah, I think I think all that all that kind of stuff kind of helped with making it sort of an everyman show. I agree. I like it. Okay, so we cut to the gate room, and we're dialing P3X797 again, and Hammond steps up to the control computer, and he's back to his old self, and everybody's back because the antihistamines work, so yay! Yay! Fantastic. SG-1 and SG-3 are actually given, um, like, tranquilizer guns that are filled with, let me see if I can get the name of this, the specific chemical compound correct, chloro phenyramine chlorophenyramine so it's basically seems to be a sort of combination of a, a sedative and the antihistamine because dr fraser explains that it should knock out a touched person long enough to like starve the virus and return them back to an untouched person we're not going to try and like dark gun all of the touch just the ones that are sort of in the way of us getting to daniel and then once we get daniel back then we'll go talk to the untouched and let them know what's going on and then let them know how they can deal with the rest of the touched people. So back on P3X797, we're at the sort of touched camp, if you will. And it seems like Daniel's antihistamine has worn off. So apparently it's been a while because he has unfortunately become one of the touched. He's got, you know, the heavy brow bone and is like, you know, grunting and doing all that stuff. And so the team starts firing on the touched with the darts, everybody that's there. And they don't shoot Daniel like Sam's going to like go up and like just give him a direct injection from a regular like syringe, which I, I don't know why she thought that was a good idea because he's, you know, aggressive Neanderthal man. Like he's not going to sit still and let you stick a syringe in him. So as predicted, Daniel just goes to attack Sam. So he and Melosha just get shot with the tranquilizer darts. So we take Daniel back to the light side with Tuplo and Sam's explaining how they found a cure and Tilk goes to place Daniel up on that bull altar to let the drugs do their work. On the altar of sadness. The altar of sadness, which is no longer the altar of sadness now, possibly. The altar of healing. So Tuplo asks how if SG-1 aren't gods and how they could lift the curse. And they again try to explain, like, it's not it's not a curse. It's just a sickness. Your, your people are sick. They're not cursed. It's fine. So Daniel wakes up and back to his sort of normal self. And this is finally what gets them to believe, you know, what SG-1 is saying. And so we then start to head back to the gate and we see that the people that um, we had gotten with the tranquilizer darts sort of coming out of the woods on the dark side, looking more like their old selves, including Melosha. So everybody's reunited and they see that it works. So yay. And so (laughs) 
Sam then tries to apologize to Jack for her behavior earlier in the locker room because she wasn't really herself. And Jack's like, I don't even remember what happened. It's what? fine. We were both drunk. It was it's fine. fine. It's fine. And then he's like, talk about it ever again. Yeah. And then he asks her, um, you know, how her wound is doing because she apparently like got stabbed in the stomach. And she says she'll be fine. And Jack is relieved because if it doesn't heal properly, you'll never wear that sweet little tank top number again. And the end. Then she has then she has a face of I see what you did there. Uh, yeah. So. I know what you did there. Yeah. So it's like I remember, but I'm gonna pretend I don't remember because I don't want to remember. Uh, but I do. But I do. So, and that's the end of the episode. Yay. The Burger Divide. So what did you think? Is this a good one? Bad one? Yes, no? This is a good one. Like I said earlier, it definitely is one that kind of sticks out in my memory of like, really, Neanderthal people? Um, but it it it's just such an out there plot line yeah. that I have so many questions. But at the same time, I think this is the episode where they really kind of start to hit the stride with the different character interactions and the character traits themselves. And I think this is where they really kind of start to hit their groove as a show. So I like it. I liked it. Although there, there are just so many questions of like, why is the altar there? Is it really the altar of sadness? And, <laughs> and you know, when they, when they visit that culture, we only ever see like four people. Yeah. So we don't actually know how many people are in this land versus how many people are sick and, yeah. and all sorts of things. So there, you just you do leave this episode going like, I have so many questions. Yeah, and like the other thing is like, okay, so you know you need to give the touch people an antihistamine, but you don't know what food or drink or thing is the thing that has the antihistamine in it. So are they just going to like get samples of everything and test it? But like, how, how are they going to figure out, are they going to like, you know, okay, so this person, you know, became a touched, what were you eating that they did not eat? Like, you know, how are, we know what to do, but how are we going to figure out the thing that we need to do that to make, you know, the touched people untouched again mm-hmm. is sort of the last lingering question I have. So uh, what I noticed with this episode is it raised an issue for me that I was kind of thinking about of when a sci-fi show will visit a society where they're doing something that is conventionally wrong, like how they treat people or like in the in the beginning of this episode when you see the girl being attacked and they go to help and there's always that thing of like, well, oh, how much should we get involved in this culture? Because they're doing this thing that we think is wrong, but maybe to them it makes sense. Or like, we shouldn't really get involved. It's not our scene. And then when it comes to doing good things for a society of like helping them with medicine, it's always, oh, we, we can help them. So we should. And it's never brought up of we can help them, but should we? Do we think they'd be able to handle this responsibility? Do we think they'd be able to, you know, use this thing, advanced thing that we give them? It seems to me that the only time this context is ever brought up is when in sci-fi shows we meet an advanced form and they're doing something awesome and we're like, why can't you help us? And they're like, oh, no, no, you're babies. You wouldn't understand this. You would take this and misuse it and whatever. And it's never brought up when modern culture man like us could mm-hmm. help lower people. Yeah, it's always an issue thing of, try, of where's that line of we help these 
people in this situation, but not in other situations. Though I, I just thought it was an interesting thing that in modern us, it's always, oh, we, we can help them, so we should for mm-hmm. good things. And if it's bad things, we're like, oh, no, no, maybe we shouldn't get involved. But in cultures where we meet somebody advanced, that's when it's, oh, we well, shouldn't you help you with help a good us. thing. But we're like, but you have to help us. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is. Yeah. It's definitely very interesting. And I don't, I don't think any sci-fi show ever really answers that question satisfactorily, mm-hmm. at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. So like in the, in the case of this episode, they should have said, you know, in, in going with the culture of when a more advanced culture meets a lower culture, mm-hmm. having the discussion of, I know we can help them, but should we help them? Do we think that they will actually use this responsibly? or somehow use it as a weapon. I mean, like maybe this culture will take this antihistamine type thing and only give it to certain people. Yeah, that's a good people question. That they, people that they deem worthy, you know, and kind yeah. of kind of cull their own culture in that way. Yeah. I, yeah. We don't know. Yeah. That is interesting. Like if, and if you, you know, commit a crime, could your, you know, access to the antihistamine like be taken as punishment then? Right. We don't know. I don't know. Interesting, huh? All sorts of things. We could yeah. we can continue this as an ongoing discussion when they meet we other could. cultures of yes. of do they ever have the discussion of when it comes to good things should yeah. they? Yeah, we'll have to keep that in mind for yeah future episodes for sure and see how it gets addressed in those times. That is my closing thought to you all. You're welcome. Excellent, thank you. I appreciate for, it. Very very well whole, put. <laughs> for the whole two people that may. <laughs> that may offer some insight as well. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. As always, you can find us on Twitter at SG underscore rewatch or email us at woo SG rewatch at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple podcasts, please. The more people find us. And if you have left us a review, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And we will see you next week for the first commandment.